When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, thank you for all of your ideas for the Big Ideas uh, episode yesterday. Properly interested in that. I think we might do that again because we had so many. Right, coming up on today's show, it's the Times Radio focus group for January. We speak to a panel of swing voters, former Labour, former Tory voters, what they think about lockdown and the party leaders and when they think we might be back to, all, to normality. But first, it's Tuesday, so our columnist panel must be Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich. I should point out that the feature before uh, them, when I spoke to uh, them on the radio, uh, we were talking to someone about doing sex parties online, uh, which might explain why the conversation kicked off like this. Uh, Daniel Finkelstein, good morning. Good morning. I, I was uh, reflecting that putting the news in the middle of a sex party that I attend sounds just like the sort of sex party I'd get invited to. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, David Ivanovich, nice to see you. Uh, morning. <laughs> yeah, me too. I was thinking that I kind of remember parties and I just about remember sex. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, either of you ever had anything bad happen to you on Zoom? On Zoom? <laughs> yeah. What's the worst thing that's happened to you on Zoom or, or, or other, other platforms are available? That's, um, uh, I just, it just made me think that it'd be, very, it'd be very easy if you were attending one of these virtual sex parties to, you know, for the dog to wander in or the doorbell to go or your, your work emails to suddenly <laughs> ping. <laughs> it's funny you should say that, but I did hear a, an absolutely true story, and it's, I mustn't kind of locate it at all, about a teacher who was giving instructions to his, 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 uh, his uh, girl students, actually, on something like and something like Zoom, and forgot when he went to have, take a leak because he took his laptop with him. That actually, though he couldn't see them anymore, they could see him, uh, and this got significantly. <laughs> and this image apparently was captured instantaneously in the way that seventeen-year-olds have the capacity to do nowadays, and shared with the entire class. Um, and I was thinking how unfair and terrible that was, really, because there's nobody who doesn't pee. Uh, uh, and so on. So his mistake is simply to take, but but immediately take. people begin to suspect that you're some kind of weird sex pest who takes your computer with you to the loser. You uh, you're beginning up. anyway. Are you beginning to regret having asked David that question, Matt? <laughs> no, I, was, I was just going to make As the ever. point that 
if they were in a classroom and the teacher said, right, all come with me, and he'd taken all the students into the toilets, that would have been weird, which is essentially what he did. So I think the onus is probably on, on the teacher to have thought about that. Anyway, oh, let's, sure. focus, let's focus on what we're supposed to be talking about. And uh, events in America, and we're sort of the, the, the picking over the, the, the wreckage of the riot in the Capitol last week. And it seems like there's a big debate going on in America right now, David, about the right way forward. Is it to uh, come down hard on the, uh, the rioters, but also Donald Trump, impeach him, remove him from office, punish everyone as hard as possible? Or is it to uh, pursue a process of healing, that sort of terrible, slightly American uh, phrase of, of bringing the country together? What do you think is the right way forward? Well, I, 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 one of the reasons I want to discuss this, because I'm very interested to hear what Danny's view about this, is because it's a genuine dilemma. On the one hand, you don't want to allow the precedent to be established that somebody like Donald Trump and other people around him could behave in this kind of a way, let alone the writers in the Capitol who are clearly illegal and will be, uh, and will be punished. But we're talking about Trump or, uh, or people close to him on the one hand. Um, and on the other hand, it's pretty clear that Joe Biden needs to get on with an agenda which is very much about dealing with the biggest problems America's got and really doesn't want to be sidetracked. And this is a genuine dilemma. It's not a kind of false dilemma. Um, now, he might... Uh, and it's a dilemma even if it's the um, Congress which takes on Trump because it takes up bandwidth and time which actually he wants to uh, have available to him to deal with those other problems. I was wondering whether, uh, what Danny thought about this and whether there were any kind of equivalents in our political past where uh, such a choice has had to be made. Mm. Well, not so much here. I, I think this is the biggest problem that America faces. Uh, and so if Joe Biden were to deal with it, he wouldn't be facing away from it. He'd be facing into America's biggest problem. It, it's a version of what I call Ford's dilemma. So in 1974, Gerald Ford had a problem. It's slightly different. He as to what to do with Richard Nixon. Did the United States, did America want its former president to end up in jail? Uh, I think the different, he determined not and gave Ford a pardon, and, ga and Ford gave Nixon a pardon. But I think the, um, the difference here is that this is an assault on America's liberal institutions. And sometimes the right way to fight a political battle, well, I suppose this would be a corresponding thing. In 19, it's a slightly different issue, but in 1979, when Margaret Thatcher stood on the door of Number 10 Downing Street, she famously said, where there's discord, let us bring harmony. And she was much lampooned <laughs> later because there was a lot of discord under her premiership. But the reason she said that is because there was discord when she took office. And there are two ways of dealing with discord. One is you conciliate the discord and that had been what we'd been trying to do for 20, 20 years uh, you know something that I'd supported my dad supported my family supported thought it was the right thing to do the other way of dealing with it is you simply win the battle uh, and um, you, you, you end the discord that way uh, and um, I'm in, by nature a conciliator uh, and, I, and I was uncomfortable with what Margaret Thatcher did when she started doing it but I think actually ultimately it brought more harmony than discord um, it, it didn't eliminate discord but it brought more harmony than discord because winning the battle sometimes is the right way to fight it so my view on this is that um, Joe Biden has to win this battle and in this particular instance, I don't think healing is the right... I think the right way to heal is to complete the battle. I don't think conciliation is the right way of dealing with this particular problem. Is it, is That's it really because... interesting, because I, I, I honestly expected you to go the other way. So you've actually surprised me. 
<laughs> yeah. No, well, I mean, I, I, he, did, he didn't even have to take you to the toilet. Um, <laughs> uh, what what um, is it? Is it because is it is it partly because of the nature of uh, Donald Trump's wrongdoing as being slightly distinct to the sort of Nixon one? Is that I... if 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 the if the American uh, political machine, the Constitution, doesn't act to protect itself to stop to make it clear to future presidents that you can't order riots uh, on the Capitol, then it's sort of it's it's clearing the way for maybe yes. Joe Biden's successor to do the same thing, so, or even his next rival at the the at the next election. So I was in favour of conciliating. I would have been in favour of conciliating when it came to, for instance, Donald Trump's tax affairs, right? I wouldn't have been in favour of pursuing him particularly uh, in a kind of aggressive way. Uh, people have to keep the law, but I, I think there would have been a case for attempting to move on from that. This is of a wholly different order. You, you cannot allow the institutions of government to be subverted in that way in favour of overturning the election. And unfortunately, I don't think that this is something you can easily compromise with or allow to slide. There are some other things where at the cost of a small amount of principle, and I give that example of tax, um, you, you, you can. Um, but there are other instances where, uh, where you can't. And I think this is, this is one of them, reluctantly, but I do think that. So what, what uh, both of you, what, um, what do you think the, the move should be? Is it removing from office, impeach him? What, what, what would be your preferred route, Danny? Well, you, you, I don't. I think um, we're going to run out of time for either impeachment, and and, and Tre Pence isn't going to do Section Twenty Five. So then there's a legal question as to whether you can impeach someone who's left office. I'd certainly be in favour of exploring that because it would prevent him from running for office again. And I think it's that dangerous. And I think that that would be a merited act. Uh, but it may not be. Uh, but you know, constitutional scholars do differ over whether or not. And they, on balance, I think it probably isn't possible, in fact, to do that. So then you, then he is subject to legal penalty if he's committed legal offences. Again, it's possible that his supporters um, have, but he hasn't. Um, but I think you examine what you can. Well, what about you, David? What's your preferred course of action? Well, I, I, was, I was listening to Alan Dershowitz, who's that sort of strange combination of um, Jonathan Sumption and Piers Morgan. Um, uh, in the American system, uh, talking this morning about how, if you examine Trump's speech, then it amounted to before the uh, before the occupation of the Capitol, it didn't amount to an incitement because it was no more or less than lots of people would tend to say rhetorically. To which one's response was immediately, well, he's the president of the United States and surely there's a kind of extra standard. But the question about whether or not that standard was either legal or reached to the levels of, of impeachment would be uh, an interesting question. But I actually agree with, with Danny very much. Um, it seems to me that uh, a delayed impeachment, in other words, the impeachment going ahead... Um, because pour les autres after the uh, and also to disqualify him uh, after the case would be good. The only problem is it looks very unlikely they get the two thirds majority in the Senate they would need. They get a majority probably, but not a two thirds majority. And that message that that then sends out is problematic in itself. But on the other hand, like Danny, I don't really see an alternative to it because you've got to say this up with this we will not put. We cannot do. put up with this. Yeah. You do. Well, let, well, let's turn our attention to someone who's come out of the last few days uh, rather better. Uh, the actor and, of course, former California governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Let's take a listen to him comparing the US capital riots to Nazi Germany. Now, I grew up in Austria. I'm very aware of Kristallnacht or the Night of Broken Glass. 
It was a night of rampage against the Jews carried out in 1938 by the Nazi equivalent of the Proud Boys. Wednesday was the day of broken glass right here in the United States. They did not just break down the doors of the building that housed the American democracy. They trampled the very principles on which our country was founded. I mean, it was quite a quite a moment, that uh, Danny um, mm. Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, maybe because of where he's from, able to spell out what what others yeah. have been perhaps thinking. I didn't have the same problem that some other Jews did have with with the use of the Kristallnacht parallel. Um, uh, my, my grandfather, actually, funny enough, that uh, was was one of the people who collected all the witness statements for Kristallnacht as part, and that that became then part of both the Eichmann and and, and Nuremberg uh, trials, and. Um, and I, so I've sort of studied this quite a bit. And although obviously it's not the equivalent, um, it, it's it's the purpose of learning all these historical lessons, the never again speeches, the um, discussion of, of, of um, the way that Nazi parties and fascist parties arise is so that we'll recognise this kind of action when we see it. And if we don't, then there's no point in all the, you know, then it's mere historical um, um, commemoration. And um, I think that would in some ways be an insult to the lessons of Kristallnacht. So I didn't have a, it's not equivalent, um, but I didn't have a problem with them using that parallel. What about you, David? What did you make of it? Yeah, I, I, I think that, I, I, sorry to be really boring here, but I think that's absolutely right. What, what Schwarzenegger was saying is, here's a process whereby fairly ordinary people can gradually be seduced into becoming essentially fascists and behaving in a fascistic way. Uh, 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 and I lived with the consequ- immediate consequences of that because the men of my father's generation were the people who did that and who spent their time being uh, incredibly guilty about it. And that guilt came out in the way in which people like myself and my mother were treated. It was, very, it was both very personal and very political. And it seemed to me that that was essentially true. That's exactly true. It's not true that some kind of strange other form of human being becomes a Nazi or a fascist or come, becomes the kind of people who tolerate that kind of thing. The problem is that it's people like us who can become that. And so you notice, you need to notice when that process is underway and you need to stop it. And that was Schwarzenegger's point, And it seemed to me entirely apropos. Yeah, it was quite it was quite a moment. And we'll talk we'll talk more about that with um, Henry Zeffman in about an hour or so. Uh, let's come closer to home and talk about Keir Starmer. Um, we'll we'll hear what the focus group have got to say about him in about half an hour's time. Um uh, th- 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 he seems to once again be getting himself uh, into some contortions over the EU and Brexit and all of that, David. What do you think is going on there? Well, he had a simple... I suppose he, th- he feels he has a simple problem, which is that he wants to conciliate uh, the voters. He wants not to um, alienate the Remain voters who, by and large, he's already got, but he wants to try and bring back into the camp people who might have voted Leave, and he wants to stop the EU being an issue, a divisive issue for Labour at the next election, where well, essentially what he wants to be able to do is to go into the next election saying, I'm not talking about rejoining the EU, I'm not talking about being divisive, I'm talking about getting a better set of relationships with the EU than the Conservatives would get you, but the other thing is off the table. But there is a long term problem with it. And it's really straightforward, which is that the logic of the size of the EU, our trade relationships with the EU, our closeness to the EU, is that sooner or later, the question of a much closer relationship with the EU will 
rise again. And if the Labour Party is not the party that deals with that and that suggests it uh, and that formulates a pot potential policy to move in that direction, then somebody else has got to be. And that is going to, And the other problem is the generational problem. Quite a lot of us think that younger people today will in five to ten years' time look again at how Europeans move around the European continent, how about European business moves around the European continent, and ask themselves the question, why on earth are we not able to do these things? It's just a logical thing. Now, that's not a prediction with a huge force behind it. That's just an intuition that people like me and I think quite a lot of other people have. Uh, Danny, do you, is there a risk with Kiss? I mean, you know, we have these these um, slight contortions he gets into. The, he's overly concerned, perhaps, that uh, he was the architect of Labour's uh, more p remain uh, policy, wanting a second referendum. Uh, so he, then worrying about that and people thinking he's a big remainer, he sort of tries to go too far the other way. I mean, to some extent, if you look quite a lot, the po people don't know. And we'll hear from the focus group in a moment. Um, People don't have very much of a pressure of him at all. Is he fretting about things that don't matter for the benefit of well, you know us who, uh, who pick yeah. over the the, the, the tiny uh, you know the tea leaves of all these things? Um, and actually, yes. he just needs to make a bigger impression with the public on the on big issues. He's certainly, if he's worried about the impression that his previous career in the shadow cabinet has made, then that would be worrying about nothing because without any question, people don't know about that. Um, but um, <laughs> my question is whether is whether or not he's um, making a correct strategic decision. Um, the, it is the obvious strategic play to try to win back the red wall seats and to aim your uh, strategy around the red wall seats. And you know, Labour was, for instance, just last night in the House of Lords voting um, with a kind of, you know, the more security-minded proposals of the government against uh, the wishes of some um, you know, more liberal people against Shami Chakrabarti's amendments and things like that. And, and, I, and I think that, they, um, that, 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 is a, that is a choice that is questionable. Not, not I'm talking here in policy terms, I'm talking here strategically. Uh, it, is, um, it seems to me that the future of the Labour Party almost certainly lies with Liberal Britain. Um, if you think that Tony Blair's correct in thinking that there's an open versus closed battle that's going to emerge, then Labour's future lies with open uh, and trying to trap the Conservative Party with closed. Now, I'm only too pleased if they don't do that, <laughs> um, you know, because it opposes a, a acute dilemma for someone like me who's an open, uh, who would describe myself as a sort of open-orientated Conservative. Um, and that is indeed what he's decided to do um go down the route of propitiating the red seat red wall seats move towards uh, neutralizing brexit i can see the immediate appeal of that because there are low-hanging fruit there's red wall seats but i'm not sure strategically it's the correct decision for labor and so if if uh keir Starmer picked up the phone to you david and said what, what what do you think i should be doing you know need to step up a gear it's nine months into the job now what would be your advice to him I think I would have said the question of our long-term relationship with Europe is going to is not going to go away, um, and this issue of what that relationship would be is going to return. Uh, and in general, Labour's view is going to be that we should have close relationships with uh, with the European Union. 
um, and what that leads to, uh, time will tell. Uh, time might tell. Now, of course, that opens him up to all kinds of attacks from uh, uh, Brexiteers and so on. Um, the most damaging of which is you're going to take us through all this again. But I think actually those the, the, those can be met. Um, and I'm slightly worried that there is a kind of tone of cat-handed populism entering into some of Labour's responses to a whole series of things at the moment, when actually it can afford to be, as Danny says, a little bit more measured, a little bit more strategic, and lay out its storm mostly in the area of competence rather than in winning back specific sections of voters who may not even actually quite exist in the same way by the time we get to 2024. That was Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich there. And of course, you can read them both on the Times website. I'll pick up a copy of the paper. Subscribe. Get yourself a digital subscription to the Times. So uh, just go to thetimes.co.uk, click on any story, uh, sign up, and you can get your first month for free, which is a bit of a boosty bonus. Up next is that Times Radio Focus Group. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Shorty. Now, as promised, it's time for the Times Radio Focus Group for January. As ever, I'm joined by James Johnson. He used to run polling for number 10 when Theresa May was in charge. He's working with polling firm Kext CNC to bring us the focus group. Morning, James. Good morning. As ever, uh, let's start with the, the, the sort of the, uh, the, the get out clause or the, at least the explanation, because people will say focus groups, that what's the point of them? They're not as good as opinion polls. Explain to us the value of focus groups. Yeah, absolutely. So unlike a poll, which is intended to be representative with around, you know, 1,000, 2,000 people, focus group is much smaller. It's six, seven, eight people. So it's not intended to sum up what the public think about a given thing. That's what we use polling for. What focus groups are there for is a much more in-depth discussion where you can talk with voters and really understand what's behind those headline numbers 
in some of the polls. It also helps political parties test messages um, and really just, as I say, just get into that further depth. So that's the big caveat, really. We're not saying this is what the British public think. We're saying this is what a cross-section do. And here we're talking to a group of English swing voters. Um, they're from uh, London, uh, Manchester and Walsall. Um, half of them voted Labour in 2019, half of them voted Conservative. And they're now saying they're undecided how they would vote if there was an election tomorrow. Thank you, as ever, James, for uh, that explanation. And you're right with things like testing messaging and that sort of thing. If if a political party says, oh, we were thinking of using this slogan, uh, they put it to a focus group. If the group laugh, uh, you're not going to get that or look baffled. You're not going to get that necessarily if you if you do it as a, in polling. So actually, you know, get, gaining that human reaction uh, is uh, is really important. Uh, so let's kick off then with the question that you always start with, just to get a sense of where the group is and uh, and their, their general views on, on politics. The big question, how is the government doing? Uh, well, uh, they're doing terrible. They keep on um, uh, changing their mind at the last minute, which benefits no one. Um, I think they've handled it quite quite badly, and I think they pander to the public more than to, uh, to their advice. I think they're quite a populist government. Um, I think it could be doing a lot better. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in their kind of shoes at the moment with what they've got to deal with. I don't agree with a lot of things they've done. I believe they should have done it a lot sooner and a lot harder restrictions straight away from the beginning instead of this having to go in and out of lockdown constantly. Um, in terms of the government, I've spent much of my life criticising the Conservative Party, but I think... This is a very hard situation we're in at the moment, so I've tried to not play any kind of party politics with, with, with that. I think, they do, I think they're doing all right, but they could do a lot better. I never really agreed with the tier system that they brought into place because I didn't really understand how they were deciding what areas to put in what tier. Like when um, they put Manchester into tier three and most places down south in tier two when Manchester's high rating wasn't as bad. I don't think they're doing a bad job. I think it's probably unprecedented times where they didn't, they never really planned for it. But also at the same time, they probably could have acted a bit faster and a bit harder in the beginning. Well, there we are. That were that was the the focus group's views on uh, how the government's doing. Uh, James, a more forgiving group than we've seen in previous months. We probably shouldn't read too much into that. They might just be forgiving people rather than thinking there's necessarily been a a shift in overall public opinion. Yeah, absolutely. We've got to put this in the context of the previous groups. However, there is a trend there that we have seen throughout the last six months or so, which is people saying, well, actually, the pandemic could have happened under any government. And it, and, they, and that, that leads them to giving a bit of the benefit of the doubt for some of the, the decisions made. They talk about not envying the position of Boris Johnson. They say, you know, you can't judge them too harshly on this. There's a couple of things behind that, as w- other things behind that as well. I think the move away from the tier system in the last month might have helped. You heard one gentleman there talking about, you know, when Manchester was moved into tier three, we know from our other focus groups that was seen as complicated and confusing. So I think national lockdown may have helped with some of that sense. And also, um, interestingly, throughout this, you know, when we started the focus group and asked them, you know, what they'd heard in the news and so on, the reference to the pandemic isn't actually front of mind. And I've heard a few people talk about that who also do uh, market and public research. You know, actually, people sort of increasingly sort of seeing the pandemic as the norm rather than something that's, you know, right there and is viewed as a political subject in their minds. Yes, yeah, so right at the very beginning, even before you ask that question, just get people to go around and introduce themselves. What do they do for a living? And uh, what news have they noticed? And it was uh, Donald Trump, 
so, uh, Americans going crazy, Trump impeached, and then a few others uh, did mention coronavirus. So, yes, yeah, not sort of right at the forefront of the mind. We'll talk more about lockdown and uh, the handling of all that and the understanding of all that. But let's 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 focus on the politics right now. Um, and the two party leaders and the two main party leaders and how they're viewed. Let's kick off with how the group view Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has made many, many U-turns during this whole um, pandemic. Um, but I think it's better for him to make a U-turn than realise when he's wrong and correct it. So he's kind of swallowed his pride, which it would be good if he got it right in the first place. But it's such a hard situation. He's trying to balance many different things at the same time. So he has made some blunders. Yes, he has. but. He's done some good things as well. So I would be 50-50 in terms of Boris Johnson. Um, I think he's trying to do as good as he can. I don't really would not want to be in his shoes. But he has made a few mistakes or he should have done things a bit sooner. But in the end, I think he's he's just like us. He's he's getting the information. He's trying to do what he can. Uh, I think he's a bit indecisive and I don't think... He's very good at getting a point across to the average working man. Uh, his uh, last minute decisions, if you could stop doing that and uh, uh, stop making plans and then uh, cutting them off when it's most important. Uh, if he stopped doing that, uh, be fine. Otherwise, he's doing a quite good job considering what he, what, what he has to uh, put up with. I'll be honest, I quite like Boris. He's always, uh, I've always found him to be quite honest and stuff. And like, when you see his actions and what he does. But as people have said, it's unprecedented times and he's sort of having to go with the flow. Yeah, okay, he's made some bad decisions in some, but he has quickly U-turned them. And he's, he's, I think he's always tried to put the best for the country first, but I don't think he's always got it right first or second time. I think he's doing the best that he can do, like, in the situation that he's in. Like, I don't think we could personally, I don't think we could be in better hands facing this pandemic, if I'm completely honest. I think he's doing OK. It's such a fluid situation. It's, it's changing on a weekly stroke, daily basis. So I think he's doing as best he can. He, isn't, you can't go looking back on with, with, with hindsight. Hindsight's a wonderful thing, but you've got to deal with it here and now. And, do you think, and in general, over the last year, have, have, your, have your guys' views of Boris got better or got worse? Same. Yeah, I'd say the same. I'd say better. I'd say the same. I'd say, the same. I'd say probably the same because I'd like him to begin with. Um, a bit so, better, actually, yeah. <laughs> there we are. Uh, James Johnson, uh, there will be people screaming at the radio right now at the suggestion that we couldn't be in better hands. Uh, I, I mean, this group is a good counterpoint to anyone who's ever uh, gone on to Twitter to see what, how uh, people are viewing the Prime Minister. Uh, the other thing that really stuck out uh, stuck out for me is is the public's view of U-turns being very different to that portrayed in the media sometimes. That actually people don't mind U-turns. They'd rather he got the decision right in the first place. Uh, but if he's recognised that something isn't working, they don't mind him changing his mind, which quite often the, the media portrayal of U-turns is one of weakness. But the, the public can be quite forgiving about that too. Yes, and I think what we see there is, you know, Boris's reputation, you're being sort of protected in some sense by that same thing we identified in the first clip, you know, this sort of sense that you know, the government is in a very difficult situation and Boris Johnson is doing a good as job as he can. Um, as you say, very different from sort of the sense you might get from 
from reading Twitter. Um, and as, as you also heard there, you know, people saying that Boris Johnson improved in the last year. The U-turns thing, uh, I think, I think you're, you're right. You know, these, these guys did view that as a positive. Um, the danger point, though, for Boris Johnson and what we've heard in other groups as well, as well as here, is that that has sort of taken away some of those brand strengths that he had at the last election, which were this sense that he had grip and that he was decisive. Although they're sort of, you know, they, they see the positive side of a U-turn, that sort of sense that things are changing and churning and there's indecision and there's a lack of clarity, there's a sort of, you know, sometimes pandering to others, um, that has sort of uh, weakened slightly Boris Johnson's sort of uh, brand for strength. Now, there are still some positives in there about Boris's brand. You heard people there talking about him, you know, being honest. Um, and I think somebody else later in the group, you know, he's, he's, he's like us. Again, that may well get some people shouting at the radio. But you can just see that sort of slight shift in the brand on the U-turns. And I think that matters for Boris Johnson in the long term. OK, let's turn to the uh, the other side of the coin there. That's what they thought about Boris Johnson. Now let's hear what they think about the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. I mean, I don't know much about him. Is that that money guy? Um, I don't agree. If it is the money guy, then I don't really agree with a lot of the things he he's does. The, uh, but... He's the uh, lead no. Labour uh, opposition prime minister. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't really know much about it, to be honest. Um, I've heard of his name, but I tend not to read a lot recently in the news because it's too depressing uh from from what i've seen of what he's done so far i think i don't think he's doing great uh especially from what my what my dad was telling me before because uh, he's 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 much more of a labor fan but i think he's going towards the other way now as, as an ex-lawyer that he is he's just consins- consistently criticizing trying to use the benefit of hindsight. There's no constructivity with them, with any of them, from the top down, and he is just there to criticise. I'll be honest, I'm not too fond of the Labour Party, especially, but at the end of the day, he can't be any worse than the ex-Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. The only way he could be worse is if he's an anti-Semite as well, but hopefully he's not. Yeah, uh, as opposition leader, uh, because this uh, pandemic is a... Uh, it doesn't matter which government's in. I think uh, I see him basically it's just in the background speaking occasionally, so I haven't paid him much attention at all. Well, it's generally the, the role of the leader of the opposition to put pressure on the government and hold them to account. But I think um, in a crisis like this, it's not good to pay politics. I think when Keir Starmer was interviewed after the lockdown was announced, he did say, you know, I don't want to quarrel with the government at this time. So I think they need to support the government where they can. Um, so, yeah, I mean, opposition leaders are always going to criticise the government, but I just, I think he's done okay. He's not gone too overboard with it, but if he wasn't criticising at all, he wouldn't be doing his job as a Labour leader. It's, it's not a party political thing, this. This is a pandemic. They should, yeah. they should be, he should be supporting Johnson to the hilt. Shouldn't be scoring points off at times like these. We should be pulling together for the good of the country. He's, he's, not, he's not pulling together for the good of the country. He's, he's, he's picking over all of the decisions that Boris and the government are doing and any ones that have got wrong or any ones that have uh, slightly snuffed up or something, he's just ripping them apart afterwards, which there's no point in doing that. It's not helpful and it just makes just leaves a bad taste in your mouth. I do agree. He should be very supportive at the moment because the whole country, well, the whole world's going through a pandemic. And everyone needs to stick together. Or coming back with a better solution. 
Well, there we are. That's what our Times Radio Focus Group thought about uh, Keir Starmer. James Johnson, um, the, pos- the, the, the good that uh, Team Labour could take out of that is that people do still see him as an improvement on Jeremy Corbyn. So he's not the negative that Jeremy Corbyn clearly was for them on the Labour Party. But he's not really landed a positive. Uh, is it a problem for the leader of the opposition that nine months in, he hasn't he doesn't seem to have made an impact and, you know, a randomly selected group of seven or eight uh, people on the focus group. None of them really knew very much about him or had formed sort of any positive view at all. Is that a, is that a problem? Yeah, I think there is a risk there for Keir Starmer. We've, we've talked about this before, you know, this sort of sense of lying low and, you know, being perhaps quite quite cautious has actually potentially put Keir Starmer in the sort of worst of both worlds, where some think he's taking political advantage and doing too much and others actually think he's absent and not not doing much at all and i think what was interesting there is that the people who didn't know him uh, as they heard the other respondents talking about the playing politics and the scoring points uh, uh, attack they then started repeating those things themselves including the lady who didn't even know who Keir Starmer was so you know there's a real risk for Keir Starmer there that if he doesn't sort of land a punch and sort of you know really sort of um, you know give a clear sense of who he is to these voters they may well fill in the blanks for him. Now, as you say, it's not all bad. And, you know, even compared to Ed Miliband, let alone Corbyn, there's not this sort of default negative view that's really uh, set in. But there is a real danger here. And I think the learning point from this is, is that you know, political leader has to define themselves early or they'll risk being defined by the public. And and if, if you get a reputation for being sort of a wishy-washy sort of carping from the sidelines, you need to do something quite bold then to shake that off and create a new impression. Yeah. And to, yeah. And to be clear, you know, I think that you could listen to those people and say, well, you know, Keir Starmer should only go and back the government now. I don't think that's right. I think that actually, you know, any any opposition would be uh, would be accused of that. Um, I think what Keir Starmer needs to do is try and get off of this um, fence of trying to do both. Um, and uh, and then he may well be able to, to, to land some punches, not only on Boris Johnson, but crucially getting a sense of who he is out there to these voters before it's too late. Okay, let's move on to you asked them how they would vote now. And this was really interesting because it's it's uh, like you said, they were split 50 50, half voted Labour last time, half voted Tory. Uh, Let's take a listen to uh, what they said. If you you asked them if they changed their mind about how they might vote now. I have. I used to be Labour all the time. Always used to be Labour, Um, mainly just because I liked what they said and that sounded right. But as soon as Boris was kind of you know getting up there to be elected I was kind of like I actually liked him because he seemed like a normal human being when a lot of you know people that go for that role don't seem like they have that sympathy they don't seem like they have you know they kind of know what a standard human being would be they they don't know the working class I definitely would go for Conservative now, just purely because I actually like Boris. I think he's doing a good job. I wouldn't say I've completely changed my mind, but I'd say if there was another general election now, I'd have to have a good think about it because I'm unsure now. Before I voted Labour, but now I think I'm unsure, so I don't know. To do with the the new the new guy they've got in Labour as well, I just I don't think they're as they're as strong as they they were anymore. And I think a lot of more people are, are going to Conservative now. No. I, I still vote Labour, um, even so, but uh, yeah. I agree with what other people are saying. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a bit more uh, bit more vague about it at the moment, but it's still be mostly Labour. I, I'll still vote the same. 
as ever, James, I probably shouldn't read too much into that, but it's just a good uh, counterpoint to the sort of overwhelming sort of narrative from uh, you know social media and, and actually some of the polls. And the polls have got the Tories and Labour uh, neck and neck, um, which you know some people might expect uh, the Tories to be doing less well, given the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic. But I tell you what, let's move on. We'll turn our attention to uh, the lockdown and what the Times Radio Focus Group panel think about the current lockdown and the rules. That's next here on Times Radio. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. Patricia Cornwell learnt to spacewalk for her latest novel spin. We'll talk cybercrime, quantum physics and good old-fashioned forensics as well. We'll also ask why house prices have gone up so much and what the outlook is for 2021. How has the pandemic changed people's priorities when looking for somewhere to live? And in our obituary slot, Life and Times, Michael Rood Jr. will pay tribute to his father, the gastronomist extraordinaire... Albert Brew. Mariella Frostrup, this afternoon from one on Times Radio. Matt Chorley, mid morning on Times Radio. Yeah, it's the Times Radio focus group where we speak to a, a panel of uh, swing voters, half Tory, half Labour from uh, across the country. Uh, James Johnson carrying it out with uh, Kext CNC for us. James, let's turn our attention to uh, the lockdown now. Um, and you asked them uh, how they were finding uh, this lockdown this time around? I think it was needed. I think it was needed? Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, I the, agree. Cases, the cases were just skyrocketing. It needed to be done. Should have done it sooner. Yeah. Probably a good idea. It's probably a, a good idea to make it uh, obligatory for everybody. But what I can't see, what I can't see with the exception of nurseries for younger, for people with young families, I've got five, five grandchildren. Um, and, and free children with, with families, and I, I can't see what more they can do to us. Uh, we, we, everyone keeps calling for a harder lockdown. Anyone got any ideas about where where they could improve on on what they're currently doing? Um, I, d- I don't think everything rests on just the government's shoulders. To be honest with you, um, I, I, you know, when I'm going about my daily business every day, there are a lot of people that are not following the rules. I think I agree with you on that one. They can only do so much to the government unless people actually follow the rules. Yeah. It's still the stress of just even going to the shops down the road. You don't know if you're going to get told off or... I've had it hard because I think I'm used to it. But also it's very frustrating at the same time that when you just want to go and meet a friend for a walk in the park, you've got to think, oh, like, is that worth the risk? Am I going to, like, is somebody going to misconstrued something? Like, the you see videos all over the place at the minute. Yeah, it's a fair bit of uh, confusion, or at least saying they were confused, about the rules. In fact, uh, let's take a listen. You asked them uh, exactly how clear you thought that they thought the rules were. No, they're, um, they're, they're asinine. There's, no. there's loopholes in think, every law. I think yeah. we've, heard, we've heard so many rules now throughout the pandemic that no one actually knows what they are anymore, like, clearly. Sorry, I just think there's been that many rules. Everyone kind of takes their own spin on them nowadays because no one... You you can you make your rules and you know what you've got to do, but you see even today still multiple people walking around without face masks on, and even going into shops very close to each other. Obviously, they could be from the same family, but it's it's. Uh, well, that was what the panel had to say about the rules. They're all uh, a bit confused. So, James, the really interesting thing on this. Um, uh, 
And we we had a quite a long conversation just as Matt Hancock last night was announcing the uh, uh, that he would not make any changes to support bubbles and to um, uh, childcare bubbles. It turned out the group didn't really know what a bubble was. Uh, a lot of talk as well about this. The, the two women who were fined for being out walking uh, with a coffee, although those fines have since been dropped. To what extent do you think people are confused by the rules or they just don't like them and they're picking their own rules? Oh, I think there's I think there's some genuine uh, some genuine confusion in here. I think that basically the general sense that you sort of get from listening to the focus group is that individually people know about sort of 25 percent of the rules together. But but and it's only when they come together that actually you get the sense that they fully know them. Um, I think that comes from the fact this isn't just a sort of a clean start. It's not like the first lockdown where the rules just come in and that's that. They're sort of they've had to evolve over time. They've had to deal with the changing situation as well as obviously uh, previously rules being different in different places. There was some praise for gov.uk for being a sort of central database of the rules now. Um, but they've also had to struggle with these difficult concepts and, you know, support bubbles, things like support bubbles. You know, a lot of us sort of in the Westminster bubble and government sort of think, well, support bubbles, everybody knows what those are. Actually, people thought that meant the rule of six. People thought that was just another word for household. Um, so really difficult uh, in, in the sense of that, you know, if the government wants people to comply more, they need to make sure they're constantly getting across the message of what these rules actually are in the first place. Yeah, to be clear, the Westminster bubble is completely separate. It's not uh, something related to support bubbles or family bubbles or childcare <laughs> bubbles or, or whatever it might be. Um, th- there, was a, there, were, there was concern about the police being um, heavy handed. But I mean, obviously, the message was getting through that the police were out and about and people having doubts about going out. So maybe the government would be would be happy with that. There was one um, exchange that I thought was really interesting about the impact that all this is having on us and the sort of the national mood, if you like, uh, in this lockdown compared to the last one. Let's take a take a listen to a discussion, a discussion that they had about how they were, they were people possibly even judging each other. I think it's just causing everybody to judge people when it's no one's business. But yeah. you have to because you just don't know who's got it, who hasn't got it. Okay. I think that's the worst bit is when people are judging people as well because you don't know people's circumstances, you don't know who's in whose support bubble, you don't know who exactly. lives with who. So people are jumping to conclusions and yeah. it's when we at the beginning I think it was all about togetherness and be kind and now it's turned yeah. into a very very me, 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 very, very selfish world out there, I think. It's interesting that James, isn't it? That the impact that everyone sort of feels a bit more on their own they're a bit more suspicious of people they think other people are suspicious of them yeah exactly and it's very different to what we saw earlier in the pandemic where this sort of sense of national spirit um they didn't talk about them this time i think it's the first time that the dominic cummings words have not come up in the focus group You're right. the barnard castle klaxon was not sounded yeah that's a very good point yeah, it's um, so we'll have to see whether that's a pattern or not in our future ones. But it, a, a lot of things over the last year, like celebrities breaking the rules, like the Dominic Cummings affair, um, and also just the length of the pandemic has meant that a lot of that national spirit has gone. And I think that that makes it harder for the government to sort of get people to comply as the more sort of people get frustrated, the more they sort of put their hands up in the air and say, well, I'll take this risk or, or, or I'll pop out and see that person. Um, now, that's not to say that compliance is poor. It's clearly... It's clearly quite good and clearly the rules aren't as strict as the first lockdown, but certainly more of a challenge if you can't appeal to that sense of national spirit as they were able to do the first time round. 
James, let's turn our attention now to uh, the vaccine. Obviously, the rollout of the vaccine is the big question of the day. And you asked them uh, how keen they'd be on having a vaccine at 2 a.m. Uh, in the morning? Yes. Two in the morning? No. Uh, well, yeah, because yeah. I think uh, the situation is uh, all hands on deck. So uh, the faster we can do it, the better. So uh, I would do it. But obviously, uh, a lot of people wouldn't. But yeah, it would be fine with me. Yeah, I'd okay. do it. Anyone else? Max? Yeah, I'd definitely do it. I don't... Um, I know it's a, I know it's late and stuff, but people can't moan that they're not rolling it out fast enough if people won't go and get it at, at given time. So, okay. I do it at, well, obviously because I'm a single parent, I, I can't exactly leave my child to go and get it. Um, if it was a reasonable time, I, I want to get it either way. It just needs to be accessible for, or at least staggered throughout the days of and hours of the day when people can go and get it. I wouldn't personally, but that's because of my personal circumstances. I think if that fits in with your lifestyle, then that fits in with your lifestyle. But I think it's unrealistic to ask the majority of people to do it. I personally would have pushed the vaccinations. And if people were going to be a bit funny with the vaccinations, I'd have made it mandatory for certain ages. So, James, really interesting there. We should point out again that this is not an opinion poll. It's just a focus group and the views of the, the seven or eight people um, on the group last night. But I think this is the first time... We've done one of these uh, where some form of vaccine scepticism or even anti-vaccine hasn't come up at all. They were all very keen on the vaccine um, and uh, just, you know, concerns about childcare if they had to come get one at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and actually going as far as what one chap there going as far as suggesting that, that having the vaccine should be mandatory. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, we've seen that in polls as well. Um, I think the ONS released a poll showing that uh, uptake has increased the more the vaccination programmes gone on. I mean, and they also feel like the vaccine rollout has gone pretty well so far. A lot of people are aware of that two million figure that we saw Boris Johnson announce yesterday and generally a sense that it had sort of gone at an impressive pace. The interesting thing that I found about this and perhaps challenged my own biases, I'm one of these people who's desperate for the government to go as fast as possible on this so we can have some freedom, is that... Uh, it, there wasn't really this sort of sent much sense of impatience with the vaccine rollout either, or really much interest in it. There was just this sort of general perception that you know, it was being handled well and it was going on at a sensible pace. So for these voters, it sort of felt like something that was that was going well and uh, they were just going to sit back and, and wait for it to be done. Yeah, no, it was remarkable. And if you compare that to some of the, the, the views that we've, we've picked up in the last uh, few months, yeah, they do seem much more maybe resigned rather than happy, but just, you know, resigned to the fact that this is where we are. We needed a lockdown because case cases were rising and we just have to sit tight and wait for the vaccine. Um, next up, this is really interesting. So you asked them two things. In a moment here when you asked when, when we'd be back to normal. But first, let's hear what they said when you asked them when this lockdown might end. I think at least April. Yeah, I'd, I'd quite agree with that time, April, Easter bank holiday. Just looking at the rates still going up, it's quite hard to put a figure on it. We'll, we'll, we'll come out of it when, when we get vaccinated. It's probably looking like it's going to be a good few months. Uh, so there we are. That was how they thought how long it might be until we're uh, out of the lockdown. Now, the big question, which I've been asking you to, to send in today as well, when will we be back to normal? At least next year, I'm thinking maybe, maybe October, but I'm fully everything better. I'm thinking maybe uh, next year, but who knows? It changes every week. I'd hope October, but the pessimist in me, I'm thinking, uh, I'm thinking we'll probably be, probably be right about Christmas time, possibly the new year. Because okay. all it needs is one mutation and it throws everything out again. 
I think it'll be next year. I also think they need another winter of like people being vaccinated to find out what is going to go with the figures and the infection rate. Well, um, it, it seems to be that potential. I think Chris Whitty alluded to this the other day at the briefing that it, it could be a seasonal thing where going forward we have to have more um, precautions in, in, in winter. Um, I hope not, but you know it might be that we're like um, we're like animals that hibernate in winter. We have to every winter we have to hibernate, and every summer we go out and play. I hope that's not the case, but who knows how long the virus is going to last for. Um, back to normal, actually. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's going to be later on this year. Uh, hopefully, maybe uh, maybe autumn, I would have thought. Jeremy? Maybe even summer, if we're lucky. James, before I get your take on, on those, uh, Times Radio listeners have been sending in their, their predictions as well. It just goes to show nobody knows because they're all over the place. Neve says around mid-May the pubs will be open, indoor mixing allowed, but there'll still be some limits uh, and it'll be a while before they'll be removed. Peter says 2024. Blimey, before we get back to normal. Uh, uh, someone else saying spring 2022, May 2022. So, then Ryan says pubs and o- restaurants open end of March, complete normality by the summer holidays. Jack says normalising back to how it was before, well into next year, normalising things open and like to close again autumn this year. And on and on it goes. Uh, what do you make of the level of sort of optimism that you'd normally expect listening into one of these focus groups, James Johnson? Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically the public are quite grounded on this stuff. Um, they don't have unrealistic expectations. Um, they're not really listening to the government in terms of uh, their targets or aims. There wasn't really a mention of when Boris Johnson has said to reopen. And obviously, Boris Johnson's sort of previous promises have got quite a lot of coverage in terms of you know, maybe back to normal by Christmas or back to normal by spring, et cetera, et cetera. Those don't really seem to be cutting through. I think it goes back to that point, Matt, that the public are sort of quite resigned to this pandemic and they're sort of they know it's bad and they're trying to carry on their life as much as possible and they know it's a bit of a waiting game and they're pretty realistic about that yeah i suppose that's the thing is it the mood of uh instead of hanging on every word watching every press conference thinking oh next week might we might be out of all this people do seem much more uh realistic perhaps um uh, finally you asked them for their 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 single message if if and i'm sure boris johnson's got times radio on when he's working from home uh this morning uh you asked for their their one message to the government listen to the science be clear on what your restrictions are don't promise us anything that you can't fulfill more fact checking on what you announce make the rules more understandable so there's no loopholes interpretations do what you have to do and don't try to pander to the media all the time. So, James, what to take away from that? If you were in Downing Street right now, as you, you did this job for uh, Theresa May, what, what's the takeaway? What would you be putting in your notes to Boris Johnson about what he should, he should be doing um, heading into 2021? Yeah, well, I think I'd be saying, you know, that actually, for considering you know, all that's happened over the last 12 months, this is clearly a relatively strong position for Boris Johnson that we have seen in other focus groups and indeed in polls in, in the Red Wall, for example, perhaps the damage to the brand is a little bit stronger there. Um, but uh, overall, this is a pretty good position for Boris Johnson. But there has been some sort of attrition to his brand, as I say, particularly on indecision, particularly on U-turns, uh, particularly on the sort of speed of bringing in restrictions, and especially on this sort of general sense uh, that um, they sometimes uh, are not being as clear as they could be on the communication. So I'd say those are the things to improve on but i have to say matt that um listening to this focus group i'd be much more worried if i was in keir starmer's office right now because it really does just bring across the sense that yes they're still four years out from a general election 
But there is a lot of work to do in terms of introducing Keir Starmer to the electorate. And I think that this focus group clearly shows that that's got to be Labour's objective over the next few months if they want to break through this otherwise, this attack that's otherwise landing about Keir Starmer playing party politics. Uh, just finally then, uh, James, uh, legally, uh, we always ask about uh, Rishi Sunak. Well, here, I mean, what was interesting, actually, we asked about several other people. Gavin Williams, I mean, what was it, 90 minutes of material, so we obviously can't play it all out on air. Gavin Williamson, they weren't totally sure who he was, just generally thought the school's issue was a bit of a mess. Tony Blair, similarly, not that bothered. Um, but uh, time and time again, I think every time we've done one of these, uh, going all the way back to June last year, uh, one person always comes out of it very positively. Let's hear what they had to say when you asked them about Rishi Sunak. I think I like him. I think he's doing a good job. I think he's trying to keep the country moving and keep the country going, as well as looking after people. I'll be honest, I'd love to know where they're finding all the money from that they keep pulling out of fresh air, because for years all we've heard is the government scheme, but all of a sudden they've got millions and millions. <laughs> I like him. I'm getting, I'm getting this grant, this self-employed grant every three months. Yeah, I think he's doing a good thing by, by uh, uh, being generous with this, with this whole thing right from the start. I think his kind of help and support is very helpful for everybody. Yeah, I think he's done a, a good job, but I, just, I was just thinking, could you imagine how much he would have been criticised if he was a Labour Chancellor giving people money to stay at home? You'd never hear the end of it. James, I thought that last comment was, was about the most politically astute uh, bit of analysis um, from the whole group, actually. Uh, absolutely. And I think you know, what, what we see here is that Rishi Sunak is still riding riding high. It's not, I mean, it's, it's funny, right? Because a lot of that suggests that Rishi Sunak is only popular because he's given money out. But actually, <laughs> when you dig a bit deeper, there is more to it than that. A lot of it goes back to that speech he gave when he gave, uh, when, he, when he sort of first announced the financial support. People just instinctively like him. They feel like he's more on their side. And I think that the interesting thing here is, is that that could well continue, even if, if he has to make tough financial decisions, because you heard in there, there is this sense that the debt is very high, there is this permission um, for the government to make difficult decisions, as long as it's seen as fair, as long as it's seen like they're paying in, but also uh, the more, more richer people are as well. But yeah, if you're really listening to this, then nothing's changed over the last six months, you're still the most popular person, uh, well, really in UK politics. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. Mm-hmm.